I want to tattoo this quote on my forehead. I, I probably reference this so much, but she says, we can reduce the effect of our biases by combining a large scale understanding of averages with the long-term lens of a single athlete. If you train athletes, you've probably heard the term return to play. It's such a hot button topic in our industry, and it's something that more and more people are talking about, and rightfully so. Because look, there is so much room for interpretation. When you hear the term return to play, what does that even mean? Are we talking about just getting somebody back on the field? Are we getting them to practice? Are we getting them back into competition? And so when we talk about this idea and this term of return to play, it behooves us to really start to outline some principles. What's most important? How can we use data? How can we smooth and improve this process to help our athletes get the best possible result? And that's why today I brought my good friend, Anthony Ionarino on the show. Anthony is a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach currently serving as a performance therapist with the Washington Wizards. Prior to transitioning to professional sports, Anthony served as a clinic director for Rehab to Perform, as well as the performance therapist for the Bullis School track and field, where he worked with elite high school runners, both trackside and in the clinic. In addition to his work with the Wizards, Anthony is also a director and lecturer with R2P Academy, which provides rehab and performance education to clinicians and coaches both in person and virtually. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, in my 23 plus years in the industry, I have done a lot of return to play programs. And I've seen everything from your anterior knee pain or anterior shoulder pain to rehabbing ACLs, microfractures, Achilles tendon ruptures. I've seen a lot and I've been in a lot of different environments helping these athletes rehab and come back. So when it comes to Anthony, I'm so excited because we're going to start really big picture. We're going to talk about what he describes as his meta principles of the return to play process. We're going to talk about silver linings and why sometimes a really extended or perhaps even annual like long-term rehab could be very beneficial in the grand scheme of an athlete's long-term career. We're going to talk about decision making. We're going to talk about how to use data. And if you don't have access to data, how you can use proxies to help you still get great results with the athletes that you're working with. We're going to dive in. We're going to talk about hamstrings. Coming from the soccer world, this is something I'm very passionate about, but you see hamstring issues in basketball, in soccer, and especially in track. So we're going to talk about some of the risk factors involved with hamstrings, and from there, we're going to talk about training strategies. What should you be doing in the gym, and maybe what should you be doing outside of the gym with regards to your running work to help prevent hamstring issues? Then last but not least, we're going to dive in. We're going to talk about careers. We're going to talk about You know, what changes when you move from the private sector into pro sports? We're going to talk about continuing education, how to keep challenging yourself, and much, much more. It's an awesome episode, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome episode with my guy, Anthony Ionarino. 
Today's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by Hawken Dynamics. Hawken Dynamics consider themselves part of the process, not the process. Force plates are in no way, shape, or form new technology, but Hawken has brought them to the 21st century. Hawken Dynamics plates are wireless, which makes them portable and easy to set up and use. You'll have the ability to performance test your athletes in a matter of seconds and give them immediate feedback on their strengths and weaknesses. And last but not least, their software interface is clean, intuitive, and easy on the eye, so both you and your athletes can visualize what's going on and how to improve their performance. Now, the reason I invested in Hawken Dynamics Force Plates was simple. I was tired of feelings and subjective information being the sole driver of my decision-making process. At this point in my career, I want a blend of both subjective assessments and objective-driven metrics to drive my program design. I love the idea of having dual force plates so you can see side-to-side differences and asymmetries, especially in athletes who are in the return-to-play process. I want to be able to collect and track data across the athletic spectrum from our young kiddos to my elite athletes that are playing in the NBA or MLS. Another driver for me was finding ways to assess performance that aren't reliant on lifting technique. While I would never bring a kid in and test their 1RM squat or deadlift on day one, I have zero issue putting them on force plates to test their power in a vertical jump or their force output in a mid-thigh pull or iso squat. But arguably the biggest driver for me was being able to take all of this technology and making it incredibly easy to use. With options to lease or buy, coupled with a five-year warranty, I'm confident that Hawken Dynamics Force Plates can take your performance facility to the next level. To learn more, head over to hawkendynamics.com or follow them on Instagram at Hawken Dynamics. Or for direct sales inquiries, feel free to reach out to Drake Berberet directly at drake at hawkendynamics.com or follow him on Instagram at strength2.speed. Anthony, my man, thank you so much for coming on today. Super excited to have you on and chat with you. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure thing, Mike. First and foremost, like I'm just honored to be on this. Like I've kind of fanboying out right now because you know it's been something where as long as I've been in this profession I've been I've been listening to you and your work so it kind of feels like uh getting called up on stage to play drum with the Red Hot Chili Peppers right now so yes let's um, go so I'm pumped about that but no uh I'm a, a physical therapist strength conditioning coach currently working uh in Washington DC with the Washington Wizards just finished my uh second season with the team uh, prior to that was a clinic director for a clinic called Rehab to Reform. So I've been a physical therapist for, I think I just hit six years. I've been a strength conditioning coach for about 10. So I've really just been trying to, to blend those two worlds and, and get better every day uh, here working in, in DC. I love it. I love it. So talk to me. I love getting people's backstory. What led you to the world of physical preparation? What, what got you started in all this? So my story is like, so average with every other strength coach you listen to, like, you know, below average underpowered athlete, like found the weight room and, you know, found a glimmer of hope for his career. Right. And then in the meantime, like fell in love with, you know, human body anatomy, physiology and putting pieces together. But for me, a big piece was like, I just very clearly remember like this transition as an athlete, as a my primary sport of soccer, where like my focus became less of like, my own development and more of like the team dynamic and it kind of, you know, before I ended up playing, I was like, I think I want to coach mm-hmm. like, and then, you know, in school, I was definitely gravitating towards biology and anatomy and those types of things. So those two worlds seemed to, to come together. And I really remember like 
finishing high school and becoming obsessed with this thought of like working for like the Gatorade Sports Science Institute. So like, you remember those commercials where like those dudes were just crushing VO2 max tests and just like yes. dripping out like lemon lime Gatorade out of their foreheads. <laughs> and like the person, the lab coach just like scribbling vicious, vicious notes. Like yeah. I wanted to be that person in the lab. Coach, yeah. Right? Like, so I just got really excited about, you know, anything that affected human performance and uh, thought it was going to be more of that, you know, ex-phys route. And lo and behold, after my first chemistry lab in school, I, uh, I figured out that I was not meant to be the guy in the lab coat and I was uh, meant to be the guy in the gym. So I got more involved in like the, the fitness side of things, teaching group fitness, uh, CrossFit when I was uh, early in, um, in undergrad and then, you know, hurt myself seven too many times in the weight room doing stupid stuff and started asking questions about, you know, is this really the best, best way for me to train? And, uh, that kind of stuff led me to, you know, Mike Boyle's work, led me to urine Bill's work, um, led me to find that, you know, guys like Anthony Donskov happened to have a gym 10 minutes from where I grew up and, uh, landed yeah. an internship there, uh, started working in the weight room as a student assistant at university of Dayton with our, uh, our D one program for, uh, the remainder of my college time there. And then, uh, went intern at Boyles and then kind of had a, it was like full head of steam forward to be a strength conditioning coach. I wanted to be in the collegiate setting. So I was looking at GAs and then really towards the end of my time in undergrad, I started kind of getting the, you know, the rehab bug. I started realizing a lot of my time and attention was focused there. Um, so I decided to kind of put my chips on the table for, for kind of one big dream school, uh, GA. And I decided, hey, if I don't get this, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to head to PT school and ended up, you know, they took two people under being third on the list for the, the GA spot. So it couldn't have worked out better because that pushed me to, to where I am now. And I think, you know, if I wouldn't have gone the PT route, I would have uh, had an itch I couldn't scratch. But yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, along that path, too, like I was kind of getting ready. I had to take a year gap uh, to get my hours and everything for school and got a call from minor league baseball team as well to looking for a strength or looking for strength conditioning coach. So I went out to spring training for a week and was like love and life out there. You know, I was like, you know what? I don't think school I'm ready for school. I really don't want to sit in a classroom. I think I want to do this. So, uh, some people talked me off, off that just, saying, <laughs> you know, be patient, go to school. And, right. you know, I was smart enough to reach out to a lot of, to a lot of my mentors and people I respect in the field and actually cold called a lot of people I didn't know, but respected. And everyone was like, Hey man, just, suck it up and go to school, you know? So right. I was, uh, not loving that advice when I was sitting in wound care class, uh, during, during the summer when I thought I should have been, uh, on riding the bus with the team and spitting sunflower seeds, but it, it, right. uh, it paid, it paid dividends in the end. So, so walk us from that point forward, like obviously pretty cool gig now with the Washington wizards, walk us through PT school to where you're at now. Give us the career path because you're in a pretty cool position, right? And a lot of young coaches probably listening in are like, oh, man, I want to go. I want to be in the NBA. I'm going to get in the league. So talk to me about those steps because everybody thinks it's just like, yo, I'm going to do an internship and then I'm going to be in the league. And it doesn't always work quite like that. Yeah, I think and I tell a lot of like any, you know, younger coach or therapist will listen. Like, I think the foundation comes in coaching. Like mm -hmm. that's something you can do without the degree. That's something you can do without the license um, to really start early and get your, get your hands on with people, get experience coaching, cueing. Cause that's really the, the bedrock and foundation of what we do. And I think secondarily, like there, as you're doing that, you're starting a career and you're building, you're building a network. You're understanding what you like, what you don't like, what resonates you, what, what doesn't. And you're yeah. finding the people who are kind of innovating and pushing. So for me, it honestly came down to like, I think initially from when I started the field was, it was asked, starting with a question, like, why am I hurting myself and how do I, how do I get better? How do I train better? 
and that just kept leading to more and more questions, it kept leading to people that were asking and answering good questions. So um, I think you just kind of chase that rabbit hole and you end up kind of finding yourself in, you know, room after room with people who are a lot smarter than you and, a lot, and are just as curious as you. Um, and I feel like good stuff happens from there. So I was lucky to kind of end up in some rooms with, you know, you and Bill and the, the team at IFAST and um, was able to kind of work out some time to observe with Bill and then eventually come into a four week rotation uh, with him and, and hang with you and the Indy 11 as well. And just, yeah. I think if you make that decision to, to be around people like that, you have, you really leave yourself no choice, but to be great. Like, cause you, you can't, unless you stay in that room. Right. Yes. So for me, it's continuing to try to keep putting myself in those room, keep putting myself in places where I, you know, feel overwhelmed and feel like I'm, you know, you know, the dumbest person in the room. And, <laughs> um, that's kind of the, I think that's the periodization of a career right there is to continue to find ways to be uncomfortable. So that's really the, I mean, it's just a series of doing that over and over again from school, finding clinical rotations that were going to challenge my thinking process that were going to put me in positions to kind of take a next step. So, um, I try to curate that stuff out and I luckily ended up at, you know, rehab to perform, which became a really big foundation for me, um, and led me to move out to the, you know, the DC area. Um, and then, uh, got to spend some time with you guys and then got to spend some time out in Arizona with, uh, the mayor himself, Connor Ryan. So, Oh Yeah. Yeah. Dude, true OG right there, man. Oh, Connor 100, Ryan. 100%. So I think like, you know, I said you're kind of the average of the people that you assimilate with. And, you know, I'm just very thankful and honored to, to kind of have been around those types of people. So um, really when that, that did is it, it put me in a situation, I think, at a school where I was able to have a system to, you know, to understand how to learn. I think yeah. that's the biggest thing because you walk into your career and you're going to get so many different data points and you're going to get busy because the, the field of physical therapy or coaching is it's production based. Like you have to see people, you've got to put the hours in. Yep. But if you start doing that without a foundation of how to learn and how to audit yourself or how to think, it can quickly become really noisy and stunt growth. So I think having that prior to getting the, you know, 14, 15 patients a day for, you know, five days a week rhythm um, allows for, for, for good growth. Yeah. Um, so really in that realm, like as I can, as I got in the clinic, like I, I kept trying to, you know, continue networking, continue to find ways to push myself courses, ways to just continue answering questions for the, the patients in front of me, um, ended up getting linked up with a, uh, there's a, like the best high school track and field program in the country happened to be, uh, right near our clinic in Potomac, Maryland, uh, Bullis school. And they're putting okay. out some amazing sprinters. So I ended up getting linked up with them and, um, got a chance to go kind of be a, a performance therapist consultant with them. Additionally, kind of join their coaching staff to help integrate some stuff we were doing in the clinic and, and track side. So, um, that was really my jump from the clinic to integrating things in a team sports setting, which I just absolutely loved because yeah. it took me from, you know, outpatient clinic work, getting those repetitions is excellent, but being able to take that outside the clinic walls and see how that affects somebody on, on a race day, um, seeing those team dynamics, seeing the psychology of, you know, someone having to step up to the starting line after you just rehab their hamstring strain, um, and understanding those dynamics, I think really pushed me to, to continue learning more and continue asking better questions and make myself a more well-rounded clinician. Additionally, just spending time around track and field coaches, um, really up my game because they're, they're absolutely brilliant without knowing how brilliant they are just because they having to do this stuff every day. Um, so I think it was a really good symbiotic, uh, process for, for all of us at the school and kids, coaches, myself included, and, uh, just had a great time. Um, from there, honestly, just, I think right place, right time, right opportunity for an opportunity opening up with, with the wizards and, um, 
you know, happen to meet the right people at the right time, happen to you know, be a job opening and happen to be, uh, you know, fortunate to put myself in a position where I was the, the right person to, to step in. So um, it's one of those things where you just feel like you won the lottery because, you know, typically you're having to move yourself across the country for these jobs. You're having to sacrifice right. a lot. And I got to, uh, you know, I'm living, living in DC and my wife works downtown and we, we got to, you know, I can take the Metro to the arena. So it's something where uh, I feel just extremely, extremely uh, fortunate to have that opportunity. Yeah. Additionally, I, I walked into a, a staff with the wizards. That's just like, amazing like they're just <laughs> they're just straight certified killers on this on this both on the strength and the medical side and on the coaching side so um for me it's something where just you feel your rate of growth i think you know as a as a coach or clinician you feel yourself as you know when you start out it's just like in the weight room you're going to have those kind of linear periodization gains where everything works right and then you start yep. you so start seeing like you need a new stimulus new challenge and this has kind of just led to like an you know what feels like a you know, tangential rise for me as far as uh, learning. So I'm just thankful that this hit me at the right time and uh, be put in this situation. Yeah, I love it. Well, I wrote down two things. I don't want to get too tangential right off the bat, but two things you said really stuck out or stood out. Sorry. <laughs> Number one was this idea of having a foundation first. And one thing that's been interesting, I know you came through the IFAST walls, but one of the cool things about people that intern at IFAS is a lot of them wanted to go on and then intern at Cressy. And I think one of the best things about that was I said, I think that's the best way to do it, right? Because we're a smaller environment, right? You know, we've got three or four in a group. Obviously that's a much bigger environment, bigger, bigger, uh, you know, populations of people in the gym at one time. So I said, Hey, look, this is the best thing for you to do is to do it in this order, right? Because you're going to get a foundation from us to build from, and then you're going to go there and you're just going to get an unlimited amount of reps. And so it's been cool to see those, those former interns that started with us and then went there and see their growth. So I think that's huge. You got to have the foundation first, because otherwise you're going to drown, right? Like you alluded to, if you don't have a good foundation, you're seeing 15, 16 patients a day, probably not going to be successful. And then second, I love this. And I, I would recommend all strength coaches at some point in time, get around a stopwatch sport like track, like powerlifting, like Olympic weightlifting, because look, man, let's be real here. If, and I don't know Alabama's football's strength and conditioning coach. So if somebody, this gets back to him somehow, I'm not throwing shade. All I'm saying is if I've got Alabama's football team, I'm going to look pretty good as their strength coach because they're pretty damn good football players. But you learn really quick about how good of a strength coach you are when you're working with stopwatch sports athletes, because it's very clear. Are they getting better or are they not? And what role are you playing in that? So those are just two things that really stood out is have a foundation. And as a strength coach, get around a stopwatch sport because you will learn very quickly whether you're being successful and having an impact or not. 100%. The more constrained it is, you, you can't hide. So yeah, you're, you're yeah it's a good way to put for, it. For good or for bad. You and cannot hide. The, and additionally, those sports seem to be like the, I kind of think of those as like, they're typically you're like pure port, force production sports. So like, yes we're talking about weightlifting and track. So it's like, those are kind of like your ABCs of athleticism. Right. So it kind of mm -hmm. strips away. Like, so I, I think of that, I mean, I'm working with basketball players and the court's limited to where we don't full spill full, you know, you really don't get up to top speed, but I'm thinking about sprint mechanics. You know, I'm thinking about yep. those, those types of things and those play, you know, credence and everything we do from a, from rehab, from a rehab process and performance process. So it's, it's foundational. It's always going to follow you. I love it. Well, this kind of goes seamlessly into my first question. Cause you and I discussed this. I want to kind of start broad and just get some foundational overarching views. And then I want to drill down into some specific topics. But for starters, I would just love to hear 
as a physical therapist, what are your foundational principles or your big rocks when it comes to return to play? Yeah, for sure. I think there's some like, you know, general, I guess, quote unquote, like meta principles that, that, that guide me when I think through this. So like one is, it's kind of in vogue right now to say reverse engineering, but I think it's a, I think it's a good concept, right? I think it's a really good concept. Like if you don't understand where you're going and don't understand what the terminal task is, like it's hard to understand where to begin. Um, So I think it's a problem in, you know, in the physical therapy industry for sure, where there seems to be a lack of understanding for the true demands of, of, of sport. Like I said, if like you're constrained to your clinic walls it's hard to understand what that actually looks like outside. It's hard to understand what troubles they're going to run into. And I think for me being on the court every single day, it's even clear how much I feel like I was missing in the clinic. Mm-hmm. And again, like that's not to knock, you know, obviously that's, that's, there's so much, there's much I'm missing from not being in the clinic because the environment's different. So there's positives and negatives to every environment. But for me, it's, I think the advice I give is like, Hey, you got to spend some of your time, going and volunteering at practice, going and hanging around a field sport to understand the context of it. Like as a former athlete, you understand some of it, but you got to come back and see it again with fresh clinical eyes mm-hmm. because it's going to come, it's going to come off different to you now. So I think spending that time talking to coaches, understanding what the limitations are, um, what things can be manipulated on field to, to, you know, better interpret the terminal task um, as they get closer to return to play. Those are all the things that I think really, really matter. Um, that we might not be able to directly manipulate in our gym or clinic, but need to be addressed to, to have a thorough process. Um, second thing is attacking rate limiting variables. So I think of this like a chemistry equation. Like when you break that down, like there's always going to be kind of a rate limiting step within the equation that you need to go through this step first, then it catalyzes the next thing to move forward. Mm-hmm. So in our rehab processes, like if we're skipping steps or we're missing the rate limiting variable, we may not be attacking like the lowest hanging fruit or the thing that's going to kick off a domino effect of, of things moving forward. So I think taking that time to really, you know, pull back and understand what are the layers here and really what are the, the constraints that are affecting this individual and where do I need to be, to begin to influence the system most, most broadly. Um, that's certainly an important concept. Um, I think another one is, especially in, in um, the long-term rehab world, is finding the silver lining in the process. So mm. um, I think that's important psychologically, especially you know working with athletes where this is their, their paycheck and even not even paycheck for a, for a lot of people not getting paid for this. It's still it's identity. It's yes. social outlets. It's everything. So really you start looking at people that might go 23, 24 years, never having a major injury. And now they're left to what am I, what am I doing with myself? How do I, how do I find purpose and meaning here? So I think from a, taking that from a tactical lens, it's, you know, Hey, you've never had an off season in how long you've never had a, this period of time where you haven't had the competing demand of sport. So rather than, you know, thinking about what we're missing out on, what does this afford us? What opportunities do we have to attack certain things that you haven't had? How is this time investment going to support the rest of your career? How can we learn from this process that is going to allow you to avoid another problem that might pop up in two to three years? So I'm constantly trying to talk to our athletes about yeah. that and understanding, you know, how to make the most of this process, how to make it meaningful and how to build something where we're not just addressing the constraints from the injury, but we're addressing bigger picture issues that might be behind them or finding other tactical solutions to, to things that, uh, that they might run into in the future. So I think it's a huge opportunity for us for sure. Um, the last like meta principle I think about is 
n equals one context with n equals 10,000 insight. So what I mean by that is like, we need to understand the, the long-term context of the individual within a large framework of data. So like there's a, a I believe Australian sports scientist, Sophia Nymphius, Dr. Sophia Nymphius. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I want to like tattoo this quote on my forehead. I, I probably reference this so much, but she says, we can reduce the effect of our biases by combining a large scale understanding of averages with the long-term lens of a single athlete. Like mm. for me, that really defines, I think, and it's really going to interlace a lot of any discussion we have on return to play processes or data or anything like that, because that's really what it comes down to is at the end of the day, like we can get caught up in what we expect to be based off of, you know, large scale averages. But at the end of the day, the person in front of you is, it's not the average there. It's an N equals one case study that you have to be able to look at, right. you know, individual factors, but again, understand how, you know, common things happen commonly. So there is going to be context there. Yep. And I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And then I would say from like a, just a generally like tactical principle standpoint, if we start breaking down like the things that when we start thinking about how do I organize a rehab process or how do we organize testing? Like there's a couple of different principles that um, I'll look at. And those are really just understanding, like we want to make sure we're, you know, addressing movement variability movement options available to the individual, how they're coordinating those movement options. I want to be, make sure we're looking at elements of force production. I want to make sure we're looking at energy production. I want to make sure we're, we're addressing graded exposure to the tissue and graded exposure to the, the, the terminal task for the individual. And then we want to address the psychological element. So self-efficacy beliefs um, within that stuff. So I, I paint that out because if we start talking about, or when you start talking about like your KPIs, your performance indicators, your tests, like those different principles will interlace like each one of those things should have a test underneath it. Each one of the things should have a metric that I'm, I'm tracking because whether it's a, you know, 88 year old grandma or, you know, a elite NBA basketball player, like those things we listed are going to, are going to matter. Sure. Sure. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about assessing risk in return to play because I don't know whether you allude to it or not, like everybody kind of knows we have this ever increasing amount of data and, and tools that we can pull from, right? It's like limitless now, but I'm interested because you're, I mean, you probably have more tools and data than most. So what metrics really matter to you, right? Like what metrics are you like? No, these have to be an important piece of assessing risk with the athletes that I'm working with. Yeah. I, I love that question because like, it's fresh enough that I made this transition from, you know, outpatient to, um, to pro sports where I, I just remember stepping in and it was like, every time I'm in the clinic, like, man, I wish I had this. I wish I had force plates. I wish I had this because it would, you know, and then I walk into, you know, like a kid in a candy store to, to this environment where you, you have everything, you have all these things. And then it's like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with it? <laughs> how do I, how do I sense make out of it? So at the end of the day, I, I think there's a couple things like the data is only as good as your uh, framework is. And then secondarily, the data should be a servant, not the master. Hmm. I like that. So you have to have a, a solid foundation of understanding what you actually need to you know, what you want to see and what you're going to do with that data before you can start implementing. Otherwise it, it creates a massive amount of noise. Sure. So when we start looking at data, I think 
some of the common flaws and things and mistakes I've made is like, you're expecting it to like kind of spit out answers for you and tell you what to do. Like you're expecting this kind of, you know, chat GPT thing to tell you, Oh, this person's <laughs> not ready or they are ready. Right. And like, right. it's just, we're not there. It's not, it's not there yet. And that's, that's taking away a lot of the, the art and, you know, even more integrated science of what we do. It's a piece of the puzzle. So when we start assessing risk, like, there's not going to be any one test or really any, you know, battery of tests that, that give us any sort of certainty. All we're trying to do is we're trying to manage probabilities here. So when I start thinking about assessing risk, I think one important concept is to think about, like, we're not really trying to identify individual risk factors. We're more so looking at injury pattern recognition. So it comes back to that long-term lens of the single athlete thing I brought up before, right? Yeah. So we might understand that there's different, you know, large scale data showing us there's different risk factors for certain injuries or different populations. However, how does this affect the long-term story of the individual in front of you? So I really like this concept of like complex web of determinants. Um, there's a really good article by, I think it's Bittencourt et al. That's like complex systems approach to, sport, to sports injury, I believe the, the article is. And what he lays out there is this concept of, like I said, this web of determinants where we're looking at these emerging patterns, like injury occurs. And then he has this graphic in there where it's a bunch of like bubbles. So it might be like anthropometrics. It might be ankle dorsiflexion. It might be muscle strength. It might be, you know, acute chronic workload. And each of these things has a bubble attributed to it. Some of the bubbles are small and some of the bubbles are much bigger and bold. So it's right. our job as a clinician to identify what are all those bubbles for the large scale group. Mm-hmm. What are those bubble and which of those bubbles now are larger and bolder for the individual in front of me? So we're kind of trying to put together a story of, you know, uh, this person that has had multiple ankle sprains and now they hurt the contralateral hamstring. Like, well, how is this stuff in, in, implicated? How are this injury pattern? What story is this telling me? And how right. does this equate with the strategy that the individual is expressing in front of me? And based off this strategy, is this efficient? Is this sustainable? Is this aligned with what's being asked, the demands that are being asked of the athlete? Is this efficient? And we need to be able to look at that and try to make a, make sense of that in order to make the most nuanced decision uh, for that individual in front of you. So talk to me because a lot of times I always try and put myself in the listener's seat, right? And so somebody's probably listening to this and like, well, this is great, Anthony. You work for the Wizards. You've got all the tools, all the tech. So with that being said, how do you improve return to play decision-making using data? But maybe on the flip side of that, how do you improve your decision-making without some of the data that you might have access to? That's a great question. So again, like I, I feel like I just kind of like downplayed data, but it's, 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 it is important. Like we do, we right. do, we do utilize it. And like I said, it, it's an enhancer inside of a well-constructed process. So I would say like, we're always using data, I think, as clinicians and coaches, whether you know it or not. That data may be your coach's eye. That data may be the feedback from the individual. Yep. That data may be force plates. It may be GPS units, right? So all that stuff is data coming in. And I think regardless of whether it's high tech or low tech, if it's, you know, something that looks really cool and shiny or if it's just something you build over time, like that stuff's valuable. But again, it needs to be, you know, weighted differently based off of, you know, what does literature say? What is your experience level? What is your level of pattern recognition as a coach? Right. Like I trust Dan Paff's eye 
watching <laughs> sprinters way more than I trust myself because he's earned that. He's earned that intuition with that where, where I have not yet. Sure. So that's just all weighed differently within that context. So um, I think with that being said, like you have to be able, like if you're going to like kind of design your process and design, you know, what your framework is for return to play, like I would start in this kind of like stripped down version of what would I, how would I MacGyver this with just my eyes, my hands and a rubber band. Yep. And then you can build up to the ideal world of where you have everything. Cause if you do it in that direction, you're not going to rely on the data. It's not going to be your master. Like I said, it can, it can be a servant to your process. So the way I think that this data can serve us is by being a kind of check to um, some things that we might make mistakes on. So like our eyes can be faulty. Our judgment systems can be faulty. Sure. When I start using data, I start using, you know, things like force plates or like those spit out numbers that I can't fudge. Right. I can't, I can't tell myself that it's better than numbers are going to tell me it's better. Yeah. So I think of these things as kind of like, you know, bumpers in our bowling alley lane that, you know, keep us from falling into the gutter. They're going to be a checks mm-hmm. and balance. In an ideal world, like I think over time, your coach's eye and the data should start aligning together. What I mean by that is like the way you can test that is like, are you surprised by what the data is telling you? If you're mm-hmm. surprised, you might need to go back and reevaluate your process or reevaluate what you're seeing. And it's going to happen for sure. But that should allow you to, to make your sense making a little more, a little more, um, acute and a little more, um, accurate. For sure. For sure. Okay. So we've kind of talked broad. Let's narrow down because you mentioned track. You and I got to hang out with the Indy 11 some. So we know one of the most prominent injuries in those two sports is hamstring pulls. And I know you're passionate about this and working a lot in this space. So let's start again, kind of broad here. What are some of like the major risk factors that play into a hamstring pathology? What are the main things that are driving some of this? This is such a fun conversation because you, you start cutting this world where like we can start listing off like the literature of what it says, but honestly that stuff's like kind of boring. So we can, yeah, it like, is boring. I've read it. It's not, <laughs> it's not exciting reading for sure. It's a lot of uh, more, more to be concluded, more research to be done. Right. Yeah. So no, this is kind of where we can, I'm going to, I'll touch on some of that stuff um, and kind of what is, I guess, quote unquote known. Um, but it's kind of fun to dip in this, I guess, theoretical world where we can kind of try to put some of these pieces together and try to understand this you know, web of determinants and how it may influence uh, specifically hamstrings. So from a research standpoint, the things that we, we start looking at here is like, number one, it's previous injury, just like any injury. Like, and I think particularly for hamstrings, it's, it's the reoccurrence rates are pretty nasty from what you see. So um, it looks like around 33% of these will reoccur with most of them happening, you know, within with 50% of them, sorry, happening within 30 days of, of the injury. So you look at that thing and you start thinking like, all right, are we returning people too quickly? Is the process not robust enough? Like what's, what's going on here um, with, with these strains. So, and it's a big deal because this is a huge money loser for, for pro sports. This is the second largest injury in profession in in American football. Um, It's certainly one of the largest in, in professional soccer Um, and then track and field watch any championship. And you're going to see, you know, guys missing out for, for major injury. So, for me, this was something where, you know, when I first started working in clinics, like I thought these were pretty easy to treat because I would see like the high school soccer kid and get him back pretty quick. And then when I started working with these elite track and field kids, it's like, oh, like we said, with with, with 
um, stopwatch sports, like you have no room for error. Like this kid, right. can't, this kid can't run this race at 85, 90%. They right. gotta, they're either a hundred percent or they're not. And right. when the, you know, when the gun goes off, it's, it's that, or it's nothing. So you start realizing how little the wiggle room is with some of these high powered individuals. Um, so things you start looking at and conversations you might start having literature is like surrounding uh, muscle architecture. So you can get in the conversation on like fascicle length. So things we'll see is like sh people with shorter muscle fascicles seem to have a larger risk of injury. And then on the flip side of the people after they have these injuries, they seem to present with shorter fascicles. Um, things we'll additionally see is, you know, stuff like age. Uh, we'll see uh, accumulated, like accumulated fatigue. So what is this, how does this acute chronic workload focus uh, into this? And then we kind of get in this black box of mechanics and mechanics matter. And you can have some really good uh, arguments with people, people over that who will be on both sides of that, of that um, war. And that's, that's an interesting conversation, but, um, and then we can start talking about like positional mechanics. So what's the, what's the pelvis doing? How's the thorax interacting? How am I stabilizing getting the minutia there? Um, and really how I start sense making all this and kind of the pattern I started seeing in our track athletes over time was like really this like vicious wrist cycle. Um, yeah. so like the way I think about this is like just a recurrent loop where you can start anywhere in this, but there's going to be like common mechanical inefficiencies as one piece. There's going to be increased eccentric stress on the muscle accumulated fatigue and then increased knee flexion, optimal torque angles. So let's start somewhere on that chain. So let's say we have a runner um, and let's say that um, they have, you know, a sprinter and let's say their mechanics are less than optimal. We have someone who's overstriding, they're reaching. Um, and now we have someone who's, you know, has less than optimal mechanics. So what we might see in that pattern is we might see increased eccentric stress because they're over lengthening the muscle, their timing might be off in that process. From right. there, we start seeing this accumulated stress theory saying, hey, we're pulling on this or we're over lengthening over and over again. Now we're creating micro trauma. And as we know, eccentric stress can, can be hell for a muscle, right? right? And if I'm running repetitively over and over and don't have time to, uh, to recover, I might have specific areas of muscle. I might have specific areas that are getting overstressed. And now those things are not able to, to, you know, turn over and adapt to that stress. Now what we start seeing with accumulated fatigue is that the body gets into a protection phase. So we start thinking about the role of the uh, muscle spindle and sensing, hey, there's damage in here. We're overstretching. I'm going to disallow this stress from happening. The muscle spindle sensitivity will go up. And now that lengthening will not be allowed to occur. So what we start seeing is the person actually gets weaker at longer lengths. So the exact mm -hmm. area that they need to be strong and be able to resist that, that stretch, they're no longer able to do it. So now those, yep. that just further enhances the, the poor mechanics, the overstriding, and now eventually, boom, something goes. So this might not be just a, you know, one stride problem. This is a 10,000, you know, 20,000 stride issue that eventually one of them is just the breaking point. Right. You know, I'm so glad we're talking about this because this was my world for so long, thinking back to the time with Indy 11 and, you know, getting guys, we are lucky. I mean, in my entire time there, we had very few hamstring issues and I don't take credit for that. I think there was a, a high degree of luck involved in that, but man, I think one of the big things that frustrated me at that point in time was just this very myopic view as to why hamstrings were getting injured. And so I think whenever I saw this kind of stuff, I really tried to help athletes and other clinicians and coaches understand that like, 
look, man, if you look at all the potential issues here, this is a very multifactorial problem we're looking at, right? And you named a bunch of them, right? Um, whether it's uh, poor, poor pelvic positioning, whether it's poor mechanics, fatigue, I forget all the research now, but in soccer, I think they say uh, over 30 minutes in the first half. So the, the, the last 15 minutes of the first half and then from 60 minutes on. So the 60 to 90 minutes rate of increase or rate of injury goes up. So it's like, look, so many people weren't talking about pelvic position. They weren't talking about fatigue. They were just looking at, okay, like fascicle length and, you know, these very myopic things. So I'm just glad to hear somebody like you talking about, look, man, we have to look at this whole thing, right? And I think a robust return to play process really does look at each one of those and figure out, okay, how much leverage can I pick up turning each one of these knobs? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, like earlier with this web determine, it's like, what's my entry point? Like, so Mm -hmm. for certain, for certain individuals, like certain, some of these things might not be manipulable. So like you might be not be changing someone's mechanics. Like I think with a sprinting athlete, like a lot of times this is essential, especially in, in youth sprinters. You see a lot of times like, oh, this kid's super fast. He's like, you know, one of the fastest kids of the country at age 14. I don't want to touch his mechanics and slow him down. But it's like, as we adapt and as we change as, you know, as we mature, like what you can get away with at 14 is different than what you can get away with 18 as the engine grows and as your anthropometrics grow change. So if we're not taking that time to maybe slow down and and, and address things early, like that's where that 17 year old starts having recurrent issues and can't get over it. Yeah. So that, but versus, but, but on the other end of that, like a basketball player, for instance, like they're not reaching top speed mechanics. So like I might not be spending that much time, you know, trying to change their sprint mechanics. Like, is it is it is the translatability really there? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna train like in a rehab process. I'm gonna train it because I think it's the most efficient way and the safest way for them to build up back to top speed for sure. But am I gonna worry so much and lose sleep if they're not transferring that over back to their transition in the court? I might want to see small changes if there's egregious you know levels of deviation that I think are putting them at risk. But I'm not going to ask them to be, you know, Usain Bolt, you know, running from uh, rim to rim. Right. Well, and I feel like I'm not going to make you comment on this based on your position, but there's a specific body type and shape in the NBA that has a tendency to pull hamstrings. Right. And if you go and you look at the people that have pulled hamstrings in the last year or two or missed significant time, by and large, there's a pretty, pretty standard body shape, body type movement strategy that you see time and time again. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, here's something else I'm really interested in. When we're looking at hamstrings, what specific metrics are you looking at with regards to hamstring health? And maybe as a corollary to that, what negative changes do you see after an injury? Because I'm sure you guys are tracking everything and you don't have to talk about it from like the Washington Wizards perspective, just hamstrings in general. What are you looking at with regards to overall health? And then what do you see on the back end when somebody does get hurt what do we see start to change or deteriorate? Yeah, from a general health standpoint, like this is where in that when you start talking about risk factor again and this like before anyone is injured risk assessment, it's, diff- it's difficult. It's really difficult. And that's where you start having to look at overall strategy. So mm-hmm. I think it comes down to, to kinematic analysis of how the person moves based off of, and, and, you know, based off the individual profile to say, is this something that may be putting them at risk? And it's, it's hard to say, because I think the things we might look at the test, like, um, 
strength. So like you look at like Norboards, like there's, there is some evidence there, but it's, it's tough. It's tough to translate in the, in the, in the evidence is, is not clear there. Right. So, and if you start looking at it, it's like, well, if I'm looking at the peak torques on a hamstring, um, at, you know, sw- at terminal swing phase, they're like 50% <laughs> higher than what you can produce isometrically. Exactly. So we're looking at yeah. things that are like 10 times person's body weight. So it's hard to necessarily equate that isometric level of force to what they're, to what they're going to be putting in while they're sprinting. Yeah. So I think that at least for me, that's a hard bridge to gap when you start talking about risk assessment. So that's where I think it comes down to, you know, again, understanding that N equals one context, um, understanding the person's mechanics, understanding their body positioning, understanding how their strategy and how their anthropometrics are putting stress on different areas of the body. And then from there, it's assessing over time. If I'm finding someone who's consistently complaining of hamstring tightness, that's a warning sign for me. And if I start looking at, you know, certain tests like a max hip flexor to active knee extension where, you know, we're pushing them into full hip hip flexion and tracking their knee extension to see the actual excursion of that. If that's changing after stress, after they run, after they play, and it's different side to side and conjoining with their complaints, now I'm getting concerned. If now they're starting to lose strength at length, so now I'm starting to see, oh, they're getting, you know, they're, they're losing strength at longer levers. Now I'm starting to see patterns that are there post-injury that are now showing that we might be in this kind of accumulated fatigue phase Mm -hmm. that might be putting us at larger risk. So it's kind of an emergent process, I would say, rather than, uh, to me, it's hard to like, to break, to like, say you're doing a full team assessment preseason and and to do anything like, oh, yep, this person's at huge risk for hamstring injury. Like, I think that's, at least for me right now, that's a difficult bridge to gap. Sure. So is that where... You've got a, I'm assuming you guys probably use multiple tests, right? It's like, okay, well, they're complaining about some things. Then you're maybe doing some of these other tests. Okay. You start to think maybe we've got some accumulated fatigue here. Then maybe you go back and you look at your force plate testing, right? And see if you're starting to see maybe longer ground contact times or something like that. Is that kind of where, again, you can't go. We talked about this up front. You can't just go. There's not one test where you're like, oh, this is going to give me all the information, it's going to tell me exactly what to do. It's like, you got to start to pick up multiple things across multiple tests that lets you know, like, uh, maybe this is something I need to be looking out for. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, I, I think a lot of way my brain goes with this stuff is like, it's hard to like, it's, it's hard to predict what part might break down. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to understand that there's inefficiencies. There's the cog in the wheel that something might break down. Yes. So yes. I think it's easier to start seeing that like kind of your check engine light pops on, but I'm like, mm, I don't know exactly what light, what that's telling me to check. So that comes down to your, you know, in-depth, in-depth assessment. So I think when I think about risk assessment or we talk about athlete screening, it's like you've got to cast a wide net. And from there, so you have your general test, you have your general, so coming back to like the principles we talked about earlier, like you have your general tests that are looking to kind of get a, a look under the hood about how each of those things, like what's their profile for each of those different components. And then from there, based on what you see, I see it as like almost like you double click on that box. Then there's options to start looking at other variables and factors. So each yep. thing might take you a different level down the rabbit hole to, to have a more new, more and more nuanced evaluation. And from there, a lot of times it's 
yeah, we're certainly going to start intervening on things. But what I also want to see is like, if I don't know this individual well, I need to start understanding how this stuff, what this means to them over a larger time frame. So how does this change as I start playing games? How does this change this? How does this affect their strategy? Is this something that's useful for them? If I take this away right now, do they have another leg to stand on or no? So again, it's that N equals one context um, with N equals you know ten thousand insight. So yeah, it's it's tricky and like I know it's frustrating to kind of always give these gray answers, but that's that's the reality we live in, and I think that's how we have to operate. Like. What you just described is exactly how I describe this to young coaches, to interns that have been in the gym is like, you know, if you see enough bodies, you can start to pick up inefficiencies, right? Things that you don't love in the context of your movement model, right? Whether it's a squat, a lunge, a a hinge, you can say, these are things that worry me, or maybe even just about their posture and their alignment, right? The way they carry their body relative uh, to the earth. So I will tell people and I'll tell these coaches like, look, I can't tell you that they're going to get injured, but I can tell you that, look, there are things here that worry me. And the thing that's scary is like you alluded to, I don't know what could break down because that's the N equals one thing, right? You could have 10 people that show up with the exact same body, body shape, body structure, body position. And one has Achilles pain, three have anterior knee pain, four have lower back pain, uh, two or three have hip impingements. You know, it's like, you don't know, but that's where, You've got to have the model first. And then again, it comes back to, okay, what is unique about this specific individual? How they bear load, maybe their body structure, things that we can't see, right? Like I'm not putting everybody under x-rays to see what their hips look like and all that. That's what gives you some insight is, okay, just on a global scale, this doesn't look exactly the way that I want. Now I need to dig deeper. Like you said, double click that box and say, okay, you've had some knee stuff. Let's double click here. Let's look a little bit deeper into your knees and maybe what could be going on there. Yeah, for sure. Cause every past history leaves a ripple effect. So you mm-hmm. got to understand like the constraints on the system, like we talked about before. So I think our job uh, is to, to identify those things. And again, like that's where our testing is doing. It's finding, it's finding constraints. So we're trying to yep. le- alleviate those things to allow the, the most access and the most options to the individual to, to express their athleticism. Yep. So they're not limited. So at the end of the day, like we said, like, the constraints might lead to, to different problems, but at the end of the day, the, the constraints are the constraints and we need to, to find a ways to, you know, to, to increase robustness and, and find more options for the athlete to solve a problem. So jumping off from there and bringing this all together to some degree, if you're a coach listening to this and you work with track athletes, basketball players, soccer players, anybody that is at risk for dealing with hamstring issues, what are some boxes you feel like they have to check in their programming to keep the hamstrings healthy? I, I, I think, I mean, you got to sprint. Like, like we talked about before, there's really no other way to replicate the stress on the, on the hamstring than, than sprinting. And I think, I mean, a lot of times we see these issues for people coming into, into preseason. You know, you see it, you'll see it in, and at once in the NFL training camp starts, you're going to see a ton of these just for, perhaps the volume or, or load or intensity of sprinting is, is not been there to prepare because at the end of the day, like there, there's, you know, there's literature showing, you know, Nordics and overload eccentrics are effective. We could do, you know, uh, fancy stuff we say on Instagram, like our, you know, reflexive eccentrics and, you know, tantrums and all this stuff. And that stuff's great. I have no, I have no problem with that stuff, but at the end of the day, like there's nothing that's loading the hamstring, like sprinting is doing. 
Right. And in addition to like, I'll be remiss if I, if I don't discuss like, especially in a sport like basketball, like I think we put hamstring injuries in a bucket that is sprint related. Like there's a lot of change of direction based lunge based, um, like torsional based issues you're going to see with hamstrings as well. So that mm -hmm. comes down to, you know, challenging position, ch make sure we're, you know, we're hitting these different buckets in the weight room to, to stress tissue appropriately. And then stressing those patterns within the in level of intensity of the terminal task prior to stepping into a reactive element on the field. So That's... it's, it's a, it's kind of a, you know, bailout answer, but it comes down to adequately preparing the tissue and adequately preparing the system to, to handle the stress you're going to be asking it to do. And again, that yeah. comes back to revert the reverse engineering concept. So one of the things that I've always tried to impress upon people is that the weight room is a great place to try and stress the body, stress the system, stress the tissues without the chaos of competitive sport. Yeah. Right? Like you can't, there's nothing you can do to replicate that, but you can try and, you know, as safely and as effectively as possible, get it as close as possible and at least expose these athletes to some of the forces and positions they're going to be in on a field, court, pitch, whatever. And so if you can do that, again, we're never going to make it truly sport specific. We all know that. But man, I think the closer you can get it while keeping athletes safe and healthy along the way, the more effective and hopefully the more robust they're going to be as a result. But absolutely. But like, I will say that the evidence and, and the, the talk of eccentric exercise as a focal point certainly does make sense physiologically, especially like sure. there's a really good article um, by Franz Bosch and Bosvahorin called, is there, is there really an eccentric action of the hamstring in, in sprinting? So okay. it's, it's excellent because it, and there's some debate on this, but I think the model is, is really helpful to understand some of this nuance here. So basically what they get into is essentially talking about how in efficient sprinting, there likely isn't actual true lengthening of the muscle fascicle until the entire musculotendinous unit lengthens 79% of its full capacity. So we have okay. these, we have the non-contractile elements in the muscle. So we have uh, the series elastic element, the parallel elastic component, um, in the series uh, that are going to that are going to extend before the fat the the fascicle actually has to. If you think about it, that's a really smart way for the body to do it. You're utilizing your free non-contractile energy. energy, right? Yeah. Kind of that rubber band effect. And then once you get past that point, now it's like, oh, we're getting to our end range. We need to actually contract this muscle to control position. Right. So if you look at sprinting and if we're hitting those positions we're not overstriding we're having good sequencing and timing and our you know our terminal swing to downstroke we're probably not hitting that 79 percent however what you start looking at is like if that fascicle starts to lengthen if i have a shorter fascicle i have less of a buffer zone before an injury happens i run out of space faster right so when we start talking about the benefit of nordics or just heavily loaded eccentric exercise overall is like we seem to find that that is actually increasing fascicle length. So that certainly theoretically makes sense for it to be uh, protective because it's going to provide that physiological buffer zone from us. If we have that overstride moment or we're, our sprinting is less efficient, it's giving us protection and give us the ability to, to manage that. And again, like if we have robustness in that position, then ideally the muscle spindle sensitivity is down to the point where we're not losing strength at length. We're maintaining strength at length to better control those positions. So 
again, it might not be something you have to rely on all the time, but it becomes that emergency break for that oh crap moment where the injury might occur. So right. that's the way I, I think about think about that. But again, sp- sprinting is going to kind of groove everything and it's going to drive the neurology and it's going to change the architecture as well. Yep. Um, but I think a way we can support them the way you're certainly with, with eccentric exercise. And like we mentioned before, focusing on position, focusing on, you know, how the pelvis integrates, how the thorax integrates, because at the end of the day, like we start thinking about the way uh, tendons will attach. And this is something Bill pointed out to me, like most tendons will attach in a spiral formation rather than just being a straight input to the, to the, so if we start thinking about that, there's going to be a winding and unwinding element when I get in and out of position. So if, if I'm not controlling pressure, well, if I'm not, if I'm not starting from a good position and I can't wind and unwind, we start thinking about this tendon being something that's getting wrung out like a, like a towel. Yep. So, and then it can't un- unwind and fill back up. And that what we're talking about filling up with is, is blood and oxygen, right? So over right. time, if I can't reoxygenate that tissue and I keep wringing it out over time and keeping that pressure on it, like that thing's going to get brittle and break. So we start yes. talking about that process for like a tendinopathy. If I start having chronic tendon and at the end of the day, the attachment for the, of the hamstring and where most of these injuries occur is, is right in the musculotendinous junction. So yeah. the tendon health is imperative here. So something we got to think about big picture as well. So, and again, that's all going to be N equals one. There's no kind of cookie cutter solution to why that's happening for somebody. So it's something that you just have to dive into with each of the individuals in front of you. I love it. Okay. Quick topic change, and then we'll start to wrap up. I want to talk about some career stuff because you've had an interesting career. I know this is something you think a lot about. So for starters, I want to talk about moving from the private sector to pro sports. And for starters, because again, a lot of people listen to this and they're like, yeah, I'd love to work in pro sports. What changes does that make to your lifestyle? Oh, it's crazy. Like it's, they can they can call my wife if they want to, to hear more, <laughs> <laughs> more about that. Um, no, it's a, it's a complete flip of lifestyle. And that's something that, you know, something I really appreciated um, when I was investigating going into this opportunity is it almost felt like everybody I talked to who'd been in that realm was trying to talk me out of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and I found myself doing the same thing to other individuals I've, I've talked to because in, they're not doing that to try to scare you. They're not doing that. But like, I think it's unfair if you don't understand what the, the realities of the, of the position is and the sacrifices you have to make to do it. There's so sure. many upsides. There's so much great stuff, but like, you can't really coordinate life as a normal human being during season. Like you are, you're working seven days a week, you know, you're working well, well over 40 hours a week. You're working, um, you're working, you know, uh, at odd hours, you're on airplanes a ton, you're living in hotel, you're living in hotel rooms. Like for us, like our travel schedule was, was crazy to the point where I believe between December and January, we were, we were on the road 40 out of 60 days for those two months. Oh my so gosh. It's something where, wild. yeah, it's, it just, it's, it's, it becomes, it becomes just for that part of season, it just becomes, that becomes life and something you have to manage and something you have to, to understand if is at this point of my life I'm in at the point of my career. And is this something that I'm, I'm willing to do? And again, there's so many positives to it. There's so much great stuff from it, but I think it's imperative to understand what that, what that does for, for a lifestyle for sure. Yeah. I think that's very helpful because uh, well, I've never seriously entertained the thought. Uh, I've had similar discussions where people, you know, obviously I know a lot of people like you and I love having these kinds of discussions and I love learning like what, what is life like in your world? And man, I can't tell you how many times people without even me asking, they're just like, yeah, don't do it. 
don't do it. <laughs> and not that it's not a great opportunity or not something that would be uh, professionally beneficial, but just they know my lifestyle. They know like the family piece for me is very important. And they're like, just don't don't even think about it. Like it's not worth it for you. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's that's where it comes down to just identifying like, yeah, what do you want? What is right for you at this phase of your career and phase of your life? And does this, does this yes. fit? And am I, am I willing to do this? So, um, and if you, you know, if that stuff all lines up, like it's, like I said, it's, it's awesome. It's excellent. It, yes. it affords so many, so many things. Yes. I love it. Okay. So kind of along those same lines, you and I are both passionate about learning. We love learning new things. We love being around, you know, like really like active, vibrant thinkers, so I'm interested, like, what are you learning about right now, man? And what, what made you decide to focus on the areas that you're working on right now? Sure. So I, I feel like I always have to like catch myself because I'm very, I'll, I'll start chasing different rabbits as I go. I get very distracted. And when it's so during yeah. the season, um, a, a lot of times I find myself studying things that are immediately actionable. I'm trying to solve immediate problems. Yes. So it almost becomes my in season. I'm needing to, to execute. I'm needing to find things right now. I'm needing to solve problems that I need to face tomorrow. Um, yes. so as I transition to off season, it's kind of like a time to, I can take a breath and say, you know, what do I really, what are my weak points right now? What are my constraints? So I, I try to do an audit, um, at the end of the year to say, you know, my performance this year, what issues, what things did I run into that I didn't understand as well as I needed to, where did I not execute, um, what areas are my rate limiting steps uh, to to not having the same problems next year? So, and then I try to periodize that over the course of the off season. So, for me right now, it's it's a point where I can kind of just enjoy learning again. I can kind of find and chase things that are interesting to me. So, like I'm kind of doing something where I'm going back and trying to start really small to build back up again. So I'm starting like I'm looking at more stuff, I guess I'm like on a cellular level on a, like trying to understand fascia, trying to understand mechanisms of manual therapy and how things are affected there. I'm reading a book on acupuncture right now because that's connecting some dots for me on things. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of hitting some different points to try to understand some more of the granular elements to help me make sense of discrepancies between other models. A lot of my job is, um, a lot of the demands of my job that are different than what they were in outpatient is I, I do a lot more manual therapy um, now that I did before. So a lot of my study and, and time is focused on, on building that skill set. Um, I think building my framework for how that fits into my movement framework and my overall return to play for, and, and just rehab framework. Um, so I'm doing a lot of work to try to sense make for that, I would say. Gotcha. It's interesting. I feel like every, I don't know if it's every couple of years, maybe it's every five, 10, I don't know, probably, uh, mileage will vary depending on the person, but I think there's a lot of value in constantly revisiting your foundation and kind of rebuilding it from the ground up, right? Like going back to like your base level anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, like going back to that foundational stuff, because I mean, I'm sure you've heard the quote at some point, you know, like you'll never read the same book twice, right? Like you read a book once and you're at a certain place in your life and you read that same book five years later and it's like reading it through different eyes, right? Because you've changed and you've evolved. And I think the same thing happens when it comes to training and rehabilitation. Like the longer you do this, you know, it helps you to go back and kind of relearn some of the foundational things and things that you maybe take for granted. Now you look at it through a different lens when you do things like that. 
hundred percent. I think that's, I think that's a really good way of putting together what I'm trying to, to do right now. And like, I'm not really looking at new materials and looking at stuff I've looked at before. And like, I like, it's funny, I'm finding things that didn't resonate with me before are kind of making sense and, and pieces that I felt like were disagreeing with each other. If you start going a couple layers deeper, you start finding the link between those two things at a, at a mm. more granular level. So that's been kind of fun to just kind of, I guess, chase those rabbits right now. And as I get closer to season, I'll start trying to make that stuff less and less general and more and more specific to where, you know, how I need to execute during, during the year. So it's kind of funny. It's you do kind of organize it like a off season training plan, I suppose, general to specific. You know, Bill and I always say that it's like everything can come back and be related to training mm -hmm. somehow, For sure. right? Somehow you can always relate it back to training. For sure. Okay, man. Big question time. If you could alter the space time continuum and give young Anthony Ionarino one piece of advice, what would it be? Don't skip steps. I think it comes back to the theme of what we're talking about. Like, I think yeah. a lot of times, like in my career, being around, you know, really smart, really successful people, you kind of look at things like, oh, like I can hack this thing or I can, you know, I don't need to go through this part of the process because I think I understand this a little bit better. Or oh, I, this is, you know, I think I'm, I'm smart enough to not have to do this. And like every time I've done that, it's coming back and just killed me. Like if I could find mm -hmm. clear yeah. examples of like, yeah, me not spending as much time on this uh, elemental thing. Like, yeah, I really failed. I failed at this process. I messed this up. I embarrassed myself here. So it's like, I think life is a great teacher in the sense that it kind of, you know, shows you up on those things. So I don't know if I'd listen to that advice because I think I'd probably do the <laughs> same thing. And I don't know if I'd actually change that because I think it works out uh, well yes. in its own way. But like, that's what I would say is you got to just, you got to, the process, the process for a reason. You just got to go through it and be patient and, and take your knocks and do it. For sure. Okay. Last but not least, lightning round. Four fairly short questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. Let's get it. Number one, can't wait for this. Dude, talk to me about the family pizza shop. <laughs> so this is one of like, this is my, my really like other life here. Like, so I, I, um, have grown up around. So my, my family has owned a, a small carry out only pizza shop in the North end of Columbus. Uh, it's been our family since my grandpa started in 1959. That's so awesome. I grew up around my grandpa running him, my, my dad running the shop. Um, and then I've gotten more hands-on uh, as my dad's uh, moving on to retire. So I've been fortunate to be able to kind of help things behind the scenes and, and keep things going, keep things in the family um, with some great partners back in, back in Columbus to, to keep the shop, keep the shop going. Um, so I, I'm really passionate, but it's kind of telling the story about the shop. It's, you know, small shops, simple, simple pizza, but um, it's just, it's so good. I think it's something where, um, I've learned a lot of lessons just for watching my dad interact, my grandpa interact with clients and just how you take something that's simple. You don't change it. You don't cheapen the product and, and you have long-term success with, within that. So, um, it's been a, a great model for, I guess, how to do things for me and, uh, yeah. excited to kind of can see that, see that growing. So the shop's called Torita's Pizza. All right, dude, I've got, I'm going to have to try it out. Sure. I don't go to uh, Columbus all the time, but I'm going to have to try it out. Okay. So this is like what we were just talking about. Number two, what parallels are there between pizza and physical prep? So what I just said, like my, my grandpa and my dad have always just said one thing when you ask, they said, don't, don't cheapen the product and, and don't change anything. So what I take from that is like when I was a kid, you know, like you're hanging around the shop and you're looking at like, you look at the menu and you're like, why aren't we adding like, you know, this kind of pizza or why aren't we putting this topic mm -hmm. on it? Like just thinking and like, 
my dad would just like look at me and shake his head. And it's like, you realize like, no, you are like, you're where you're at because of what you do well. Right. You you need to keep things simple and you need to really lean in on what your strengths are. And like, as a, as a pizza shop, like we use high quality ingredients that we haven't changed that throughout the years. Um, you know, we're known for, uh, the sausage that, that, that we make, we home make the sausage, homemade, the sausage is homemade and it's just, it's, yes. it's amazing. It's so good. So you lean into those strengths and, and people are going to love you and identify for, for, for those things. And, um, you don't change it. You stay consistent. You, de- you, you deliver the same product and, uh, things are going to work out for you over, you know, as you see that since 1959, we've been, been doing, doing well in Columbus and have been lucky to, to be voted best pizza in Columbus a couple, couple of years, uh, That's be, awesome. be recognized on the national level in some publications. So it's cool to see that from such a, a small shop to, to kind of get that recognition for just you know, being consistent and, and doing the same stuff. I, I watched my dad, you know, my whole life just be a model of consistency, you know, right. I don't know. Have you ever seen the documentary, uh, Jiro dreams of sushi? Oh Yeah. Yeah, that's a Joe Ken favorite right there. Oh, yeah. So, like, that's, I, I think that's great. It's like one of those things where I take that from my career. It's like when you're lucky enough to find something that you're passionate about for a job rather than, you know, just having to grind out 40 hours a week when it's something that, you know, you love talking about, you love reading about on your off time. And, like, I think what you owe back for that is to, to give everything you can to, to, to try to master your craft and push it as far as you can and push the field forward. So, I think that's what I took out of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And that's, that's what I see in the pizza shop is when, when you have something like that, you owe it to the craft to just be as close to perfect as you can be for, for what you are offering and, and what the consumer wants from you. Yeah, dude, I'm going to link that in the show notes. If you haven't watched that documentary, it's awesome. every trainer should watch it. Uh, and just like the level of precision the level of excellence that they try and hold themselves to is amazing. And I mean, look, I don't know how old the documentary is, but this dude was 85 still killing it in the sushi game. His son was his understudy and his son was like 50, (laughs) right? Could you imagine being 50 and still being your dad's understudy? Like, I mean, that's crazy. So it was cool. It's cool. I'll make sure I link it in the show notes. For sure. Must watch. Must watch. Uh, Number three, I heard a rumor you're working on a course. I want to hear about it. How's the course coming along? Yeah. So like what, something I'm really happy that I was able to continue to do with, as I transitioned to the lizards is, um, we started a continuing education company through Riyadh before a couple years ago. So, um, me and a couple colleagues, um, did that. And for me, teaching is, is an excellent way to help consolidate information in my head. And, um, I think a way to, to pay forward. So for me, it's something where um, I've learned from a lot of great people. I think all of us who, who help run RGB Academy teach have done the same thing. So being able to, to take this information and, and put it in a way that I think is digestible and honestly what, what I wish I would have had when I started the process of trying to learn the things I'm learning, um, that's really what we're looking to do. So talking about hamstrings today, that's that's a course that me and a colleague, Greg Ellis, have been putting together. So we're... Um, we're putting the finishing touches on our, our comprehensive hamstring uh, strain rehab program uh, that we're going to be releasing online. So uh, nice. really excited for that. A lot of the elements we talked about today and then um, a lot more um, tactical and, and practical tips to, to kind of addressing and, and how to conceptualize these things. So in addition to that, we, uh, we're going to be releasing, we, we do an in-person course as well called the blueprints 
Um, and we're going to be doing a, a level two course later this summer. So we're, we're putting the, we're starting to construct that and uh, lay that out. We're going to take a lot of this, uh, some of those like principles we talked about and some of the big tactical elements that I addressed today and, and start putting them to, to more practical pieces and address things like hamstring, address things like ACL, dress overhead athlete to try to, to give a, um, more practical case study based uh, interpretation of, of, of these things. Cause I think a lot of times you go to courses and it's like, how do, but how do I put this together? How do I put this? In? Yeah. So we're trying to, uh, cause that was our, our favorite part of those courses is having this conversation. So spend more time on that and really uh, allow the, the, the people at the course to, to drive conversation, solve problems together and, and, and leave the course uh, in a better place going forward. Man, I love those kinds of courses. For sure. And I'm super biased. Uh, you've been in the intensive, right? Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah. Bill's intensive. Uh, I try and do that at my complete coach seminars where it's very open-ended. Certain things, certain boxes I want to check, you know, but like, look, like, let's answer your questions and let's try and dive into some of the issues that you're having and struggling with. And it's cool to see. I mean, look, I don't think any of us enjoyed COVID and the pandemic and all that, but you know, going into our caves for a couple of years and doing everything on Zoom, I think people are a lot more excited now to go back out. And the model has really changed. It's not so much let's cram two, three, four hundred people in a room. It's, hey, let's get, you know, eight in Bill's case or 20 in mine or whatever size your course is going to be. Let's do it smaller. Let's be way more hands on, way more like interactive. And I think ultimately it's it's more pleasurable for me as a presenter. And it's way more educational for the attendees when you do it like that. Yeah, and I think I think one of the silver linings of COVID and of online learning is that these kind of hybrid models of learning should allow us to expedite some of the procedural learning you need to do, some of the kind of PowerPoint droning, lecture-based stuff. Like, I think when you can provide that stuff online or provide access to the foundation of that online, it allows you to get yep. to that stuff quicker. Like we talked about that interactive element, that yep. you know more deeper learning, connection-based real world application conversation that I think we've really been missing throughout, throughout COVID. So um, no, I think there, there certainly is a benefit to that as well. Agreed. All right, man. Last but not least, what's next for Anthony Ionarino, man? Off season. Are you looking forward to Vegas? Do you have to do the Vegas thing? Yeah. In July? yeah so go to yes. summer league, which is always, always a summer good league time. grind. Always a good time, man. Always a good time in summer league. I think, uh, think any more than three days in Vegas is too many, but uh, we find a way to make, <laughs> we find a way to make two weeks work uh, over summer. <laughs> over summer so uh, no, it's a, it's a guy I, last year was my first time. So I'm looking forward to going back again. It's just, it's nice. Cause there's a lot of familiar faces around the NBA new people you get to meet. And then, then uh, it's just a, it's a good atmosphere around summer league. Uh, yeah, for sure. That was that was the best part about going last year, man. I was there for two days, got to see some people, shake some hands. And then on Monday morning, I'm out, bro. <laughs> I've had enough Vegas. I didn't see a vegetable for a day and a half, I don't think so. <laughs> that is definitely the way to experience Summer League for sure. But oh, man, I'm definitely looking forward to it. No. So what's next for me? I wish I knew, man. I think uh, every time I've tried to, to plan what my career is going to look like or what life's going to look like, something's kind of hit me in the head and surprised me. So at this point, I think it's kind of like we talked about, Jiro Jim's a sushi. I'm just trying to get better every day, trying to take a step towards you know those elements of mastery and try to focus on um, small elements in front of me and kind of be flexible and, and see where things take me. So I, I feel more than blessed and fortunate to be in the situation I am. So it would be selfish of me to, to want for more. So I'm just trying to, you know, be the best I can for the people around me, um, be the best I can for my family and uh, continue just trying to grow and, and enjoy. Yeah. Respect, man. Respect what you're doing. Happy to see you where you're at, dude. 
where can my people find out more about you? How can they learn more about you and all the great work that you're doing? For sure. You can check out, um, I, I'm at Instagram. I'm not crazy active in there. I'm hoping to be doing more during the off season. Um, it's a Anarino spelled I A N N A R I N O underscore D P T or three underscore DPT. And then um, you can find me there. And then you could find uh, what we're doing with R2B Academy at R2B Academy is our Instagram handle or r2bacademy.com. Uh, so yeah, shoot me a DM. I'm, I'm always responsive, happy to, to follow up on anything, answer any questions, have any discussions for anybody looking to, to kind of go into more from this podcast. So um, happy to pay things forward, happy to help. So please reach out. I love it. Well, Anthony, man, thanks again for coming on, brother. This was really great. Absolutely. I, again, honor to be here and uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, bringing me on here. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Anthony. Really hope you enjoyed it. Man, he has such a wealth of knowledge and I really love just his overarching philosophy and how you have to have this system, this foundation, these principles to help really develop a solid return to play protocol or process. Once you have that, then you can take that to any sort of injury, whether we're talking about uh, an Achilles repair, an ACL repair, maybe it's a rotator cuff repair, basically any injury. Once you have the process and the system and the framework in place, then it comes down to, okay, now how do I apply this system or this process to this injury and this specific individual? So if you enjoyed this episode, I got a small favor to ask. If you haven't already, please subscribe and or follow the show iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon store, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now today, click on the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.